God always meets our mess with his mercy. So I thought we'd start off with our big idea today and start off with some good news right out of the gate. He always meets us at the place of our messiness, at the place of our failures. God's mercy shows up and doesn't give us what we deserve. I love that about Jesus. He doesn't give us what we all deserve. His mercy always trumps our sin. It always trumps our sin. God's mercy always has the last word. Always. Sin. Our sin, our mess, the ugly situations that we create in our lives because of our sin and the ugly situations that we find ourselves in, that ugliness and that messiness does not have the final word over our lives. Mercy does. Mercy always trumps sin. Always. Mercy always meets us in our mess. And that's what we'll see in the opening scene of Mark's gospel. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark told us what we saw last week in verse 1. Those 12 out of this world words the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now Mark will begin showing us how the gospel has arrived in technicolor in the person of Jesus. But Mark will also show us that Jesus didn't appear in a vacuum. When Jesus appears on the scene to start his public ministry, the nation of Israel was ripe for the harvest. They are anxiously awaiting the Christ, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, their Savior and their Redeemer. So there's excitement and there's anticipation in the air because word started spreading that something was happening in the wilderness. So look at Mark chapter 1 beginning with verse 2 and hear the word of the Lord. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." So Mark begins his gospel by telling us that the coming of Jesus was predicted and promised in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I love that Mark immediately appeals to the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah. I love that his knee-jerk reaction when he starts talking about Jesus is to go straight to the Old Testament and to show just how all of this was the unfolding of God's plan to show us how all of the scriptures in the Old Testament were pointing to and would find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Mark combines three phrases from three different passages in the Old Testament to show us this. Now, of course, he tells us that it was Isaiah who predicted this, and Isaiah did predict part of what he writes here. But Mark actually quotes from three different passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 23 and Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. But because the prophet Isaiah was seen as the greatest prophet, Mark simply says that it was Isaiah who said these words. 
but he's really quoting from three different places. And Mark is telling us that John the Baptist is appearing on the scene as the subject of some of the most stirring prophecies in the Old Testament. All of these promises are coming into reality when John the Baptist appears in the wilderness. It's been some 500 years since Malachi prophesied. It's been some 700 years since Isaiah prophesied. And it's been some 1,500 years since these words were written in the book of Exodus. And now we are about to move from black and white to technicolor because John the Baptist is the promised forerunner of Jesus. But the most significant thing about John is where he is preaching. He's in the wilderness. John is planting a church in the dry, barren wilderness. Who does that? Who would pick the wilderness to have some old-fashioned tent revival? I'll tell you who. Someone who knew their Old Testament Bible. John knew that the location that he chose was very significant. As they say, location, location, location. And John the Baptist has picked the premier spot in the wilderness. Now let me explain. For starters, Mark never mentions the wilderness again in his gospel. But here in chapter 1, he uses this word four times. So it's very significant. It's significant that the wilderness is the location that John chooses. Location matters. Location, location, location. And it appears that Mark is going out of his way to make sure that his audience notices this special location and then that they draw the appropriate conclusions. And so what are the conclusions that Mark wants us to draw here? Is there theological significance with the wilderness? The answer is yes. And those hearing John preach this knew it Because they knew their Bibles. They knew that the wilderness was a deeply, theologically significant spot. And so, what's the big deal about the wilderness? Well, it was in the wilderness that Yahweh met with the nation of Israel and made them his people. At Mount Sinai, God came down and entered into covenant with the nation of Israel in the wilderness. After they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they entered the wilderness, this dry, barren place, and it was here that the nation of Israel was officially betrothed to Yahweh. The wilderness was where Yahweh and Israel had their honeymoon. And this is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord... I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And so the nation of Israel once loved and served their God, Yahweh, in the wilderness. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know how this episode ends. The nation of Israel eventually rebelled in the wilderness, the very place of their honeymoon. They mumbled and grumbled and complained in the wilderness, and the first generation was forbidden to enter into the promised land. So the wilderness was a very significant place in Israel's history. It was where they entered into covenant with Yahweh. It was where they had the wedding reception. It was where they honeymooned. 
And then it was where they turned away from the Lord, where they broke covenant. It was the place where they proudly shouted that they would never turn away from Yahweh. They would never turn away from the Lord. Exodus 19 and Exodus 24, two times they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And it was the place that they showed where their commitment stinks because they didn't do everything that God said. It was the place where they showed great is our fickleness. Even Moses' last words to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 31 as Joshua is commissioned to lead the nation after Moses' death, Moses basically tells him, his parting words are this, y'all's commitment stinks, and as soon as I die, y'all are going to walk away from Yahweh. So the wilderness was this place of their sin. It was the place of their failures. But the wilderness was also significant because this was the place where Yahweh had promised he would restore the nation. In Hosea chapter 2, after 13 hard-hitting verses detailing all of their whoring after other gods, Yahweh at last declares his redeeming love for the nation and how he will woo them back in the wilderness. He will win their hearts again in the wilderness. Listen to these comforting words from the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from their mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So the wilderness was not just the place where they had their wedding. It was not just the place where they had their honeymoon. The wilderness was not just the place where they disobeyed God and walked away. It was also the place where Yahweh promised that one day he would restore them. So the nation of Israel knew Hosea chapter 2. Not many of us do, but the nation of Israel knew it. These were verses that they highlighted in their Bibles. These were verses that they memorized. They catechized their children with these verses out of Hosea chapter 2. They put Hosea chapter 2 on their coffee mugs. Why? Because it was a promise from the Lord about where he would allure her one day and speak tenderly to her in the wilderness. Hosea prophesied that the Lord was going to allure his bride back to the very spot, if you will. The very spot, not literally, but the very spot that they had their honeymoon and then he would restore them. And the nation of Israel knew this. Listen, if you knew where God had promised 
He was going to meet you and restore you. And you heard a man was preaching at that location and people were flocking to him. You'd go. If you heard that revival broke out in the wilderness, you would leave work early and go there. And that's what the nation of Israel did. They knew the significance of the wilderness. They knew Hosea chapter 2. They were waiting for it to happen. That's what's unfolding here in Mark chapter 1. That what was promised in Hosea 2 is just another reminder that God always meets our mess with his mercy. It was in the, the wilderness that Israel sinned and that's where God said that he would restore them. Our failure is the place where God meets us with his renewing comfort. It's in being exposed that we find healing. Healing and restoration is never found in the dark when you hide. God's incredibly renewing comfort meets us at the very spot of our failures. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were hiding, but it was when they came out of the bushes that God spoke a comforting promise to them. God always meets our mess with his mercy. But Hosea chapter 2 wasn't the only Bible verse that the nation of Israel had highlighted in their Bibles. They knew what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, which Mark quotes here in verses 1 through 2. Now, we're going to read the first few verses of Isaiah 40 leading up to what Mark quotes, even though Mark doesn't quote them here, because they are key to understanding why people are flocking out to hear John the Baptist preach. In Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, as you read Isaiah, it's all judgment. It's judgment, judgment, judgment. 39 chapters of it. And then comes these mind-blowing words in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Mark quotes Isaiah here because the ministry of John the Baptist is a fulfillment of these words. A voice was crying in the wilderness. The voice of John the Baptist, and he was saying, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist knew that by getting on social media, by getting on Facebook, by getting on Twitter and Instagram, and tweeting these words, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, he knew that when he did that, people in Israel would start connecting the dots. He knew that if he ran a commercial during Monday Night Football that came on right before the last Jedi trailer, then people would be more excited about his commercial than the new Star Wars commercial. They had been waiting for Isaiah chapter 40, the Isaiah chapter 40 messenger for over 700 years. And now he's here. And what was the gist of John's message as he preached in the wilderness? This was it. Yahweh loves you. Repent. Be clean. Come home. What was the big idea of John's sermons out in the wilderness? Yahweh loves you. Repent, be clean, come home. John was calling the nation to turn away from sin, turn away from living for themselves, and return to the Lord. And in returning, they would be cleansed. 
they would be comforted just as Isaiah had said 700 years before. But John didn't just preach. John was also baptizing people who responded to his sermons and who wanted to come back to the Lord. He was offering forgiveness away from the temple, away from the sacrificial system, away from the religious leaders. John was aiming for the heart, not outward religious performances. And so this ritual of baptism that is taking place in the Jordan River here is a renewal. It's a restoration. People would come and they would confess their sins and be physically washed with water to signify that their hearts were washed too. It was covenant renewal. And this is exactly what the nation of Israel did in Exodus 19 when they entered into covenant with Yahweh at Sinai. If you remember, they washed their clothes and purified themselves in preparation for meeting Yahweh. So both the Exodus washings in Exodus 19 and John's washings here in Mark 1 symbolize the transformation of their hearts that was happening. In Exodus, they celebrated freedom. Their exodus, their freedom from slavery in Egypt. In Mark, they are anticipating the new exodus, the new freedom that the Messiah would usher in. And so this baptism of repentance for the nation of Israel was a preparing to meet their God at the spot of their honeymoon in the wilderness. Repentance was renewing their marital vows with the Lord. Repentance was meeting with God. They would bring their sin and God would bring his mercy, his comfort. They would show up with their baggage and he would show up with his grace. It was covenant renewal. God was meeting them at the very spot of their failures. The word repentance here simply means to change one's mind. So repentance is simply having a change of mind and meeting God again and being comforted. That's straight out of Isaiah's playbook, by the way. Meeting God again and being comforted that God can't remember your sins and being reminded that you are adopted sons. John was reminding the nation of Israel that they were sons, that they were children of God. And this theme of sonship runs all the way through chapter 1 because we began verse 1 and we heard about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then later on in verse 11, we'll read that, that God the Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, so there's this theme of our sonship in chapter 1 that's connected to Jesus and how he pleased his Father. It's because we are related to Jesus our older brother, and because we are in union with him, that we are now declared to be sons of God. It's because of his obedience and not ours that makes us sons. So understand this, Grace. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. Don't reverse it. The Pharisees wanted to reverse it, and they were reversing it. And John comes along, and he pulls a Romans chapter 2, verse 4, before Paul ever comes on the scene. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. It's his kindness that draws us to repent. Repentance doesn't follow hard preaching that 
slams you with shame and guilt. Instead, it's preaching like Hosea and preaching like Isaiah and preaching like John the Baptist. That's the kind of preaching that leads you back home. It's as you are comforted and sweetly allured and spoken to tenderly by God that leads you to repentance. I mean, who knew that repentance could be so sweet? Owning up to your sin and owning up to your selfishness, it doesn't seem like it would be a good thing, does it? But it is good because when you do it, you get Jesus. Isn't he what you want? On the surface, repentance seems like it would be like eating liver and drinking prune juice. But repentance is actually very, very comforting. Holding on to your sin, loving your sin so much, refusing to give it up, refusing to admit that you've done wrong, that is eating liver and drinking prune juice. That's an awful place to be. That's why David said in Psalm 32 that when he held on to his cherished sins, he said, I was wasting away. But he said, but then when I confessed my sins, when I relented, when I turned back to God, he said, there was joy. I was happy. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. Listen, I've seen stuffy, legalistic, self-righteous people And they're miserable and they're angry because they focus on the sins of other people and not on their own. Have you seen them? They're angry because in their eyes, nobody is living up to their standards. And so they waste away and they wear these scowling frowns because they have not experienced the joy of admitting that they are a mess. And you can spot them a mile away. They're angry. But those who know their sin and who confess it, who run to the comforting arms of Jesus, those people know what joy looks like. And so repentance is simply owning up to your sin and your need of a Savior and then turning back to Jesus. And then what leads us to repentance, as Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness. That's why John is quoting Isaiah here. That's why John is crying out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord because God, John knows that God wants to comfort his people. And when God's people hear about his love and they hear about his mercy and they hear about his grace and they hear about the comfort that the gospel brings, it leads them to repentance. Isaiah knew what Paul meant. God's kindness leads us to repentance, not law. John the Baptist knew what Paul meant. God's kindness leads us to repentance, not law. Isaiah and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul would agree with Puritan Walter Marshall who said this, God does not drive you along with whips and terrors or by the rod of the schoolmaster of the law. Rather, he leads you and draws you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. The love of Christ is the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living. That was John's message. Pleasant attractions. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3 verse 18 that John was preaching good news to the people. And that's why they flocked to him. 
That was John's message, pleasant attractions, which stood in contrast to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. John's message was not only different from the Pharisees, but the way he dressed was different too. His dress was not merely an allusion to the Old Testament prophet Elijah, which it was, but it was also a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. They wore these elaborate robes and walked around looking down on other people. And then here comes John the Baptist looking like he was in a grunge band from the 90s. Listen to the way that Mark describes him in verse 4. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why was John sent to be the herald of Jesus the Messiah and not some religious scribe or a Pharisee who had a PhD in the Old Testament? Why? Why not some celebrity pastor Pharisee who had written a bunch of books and is speaking at all the conferences? Why was John out in the wilderness and not at the temple? Because John's ministry was an indictment on the religious system of the day and it was an indictment on the religious leaders. The dead external religion of the Pharisees was being condemned for something new. A return to the honeymoon. A return to the wilderness to be comforted by God's love. So John was saying, let's renew our wedding vows with God at the place where we had our wedding moon. Let's leave dead external religion going through the motions Christianity behind. And let's renew our covenant. Let's renew our love for Yahweh out in the wilderness at the place of our honeymoon by repenting, by changing our minds, by turning from our sin and turning back to him. And what prompted the nation of Israel to do this? What prompted large crowds to flood the wilderness? What prompts us to return to Jesus? It's comfort. It's kindness. The voice crying out, In the wilderness, come home. Your sins are forgiven. You are clean. John was crying out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, come out to the wilderness with me and prepare your heart because the Messiah is coming. And what preceded these famous words of Isaiah that John quotes? Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 2 that we just read where God calls on Isaiah to comfort God's people and remind them that they are forgiven. That's why people flock to John in the wilderness. They want to be comforted. They want good news. They come in repentance. They're turning away from sin and turning back to God. And they're wanting to hear these words. Be comforted. Yahweh can't remember your sins. Why would people flock to a dry, barren place to listen to a preacher who looked like this? He wears rough, itchy sackcloth with a belt around his waist. He eats bugs. I'm sure John had dreadlocks. Why go and listen to some preacher that dressed weird, looked weird, and was weird? I mean, who would you rather listen to? A preacher that wears a nice clean suit or a guy that looks like he just rolled out of bed and has weird hair? Don't answer that. (laughs) Why listen to a guy who promoted the bugs and honey diet? Because he had a message of comfort. He had a message of forgiveness. 
because he was telling the nation of Israel, come out to the wilderness and prepare your heart for the one you love. He's coming, just like Jeremiah said, just like Hosea said, just like Isaiah said. He will meet you there at the place of your failures and sin, and he will comfort you with his love. And then standing in stark contrast to John, we have the Pharisees who wore these elaborately made robes and walked around like they had it all together, always looking down on other people. The Pharisees were the original fruit police. You know, those people who are always looking for evidence of fruit in somebody's life. Is there fruit in your life? i got to see fruit. I'm not sure if you're born or grand. I'm not sure if you're saved. I don't see any fruit. That's the fruit police. The Pharisees were the original fruit police. They're driving the people with the whips and tares of the law. Get your act together. They were putting burdens on people that they could not bear. The Pharisees were the experts at do more, try harder religion. They were super spiritual know-it-alls who had all the answers and went around saying, he's probably not saved. I don't see any fruit in his life. And in contrast to these people stood John, the bug eater, in the desert, not in the beautiful temple, in rags, not in elaborate robes, and he was comforting the people and not giving them impossible demands. So let me ask you this morning, which do you want? Do you want comfort? Or do you want to hear the message of get your act together? Do you want kindness? Or do you want to hear, show me some fruit in your life, buddy, or you're probably not a Christian. Do you want gospel? Or do you want law? Which one leads to repentance? Which one truly gets at the heart and changes it and transforms it? I'm going with the guy who had dreadlocks and was a vegan. I'm going with the guy who looked like he just rolled out of the Coachella Festival. I'm going with the guy who ate bugs. I'm going with the guy who keeps pointing me to Jesus, not the ones who keep pointing out what I'm doing wrong. I'm going with the guy who is humble and says, I'm not the guy. I don't have all the answers. Not the ones who are so full of themselves and think they are right about everything. I'm going with the guy who says, it is finished. It's done. And not the ones who say, do more. You got to do more. You got to try harder. I'm going with the guy who offers rest. Not the ones who offer more and more man-made rules. I'm going with a guy who humbly says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And that's why people flocked to John. He was pointing them to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, to the one who was coming to live and die for them. John was preparing the way for the one that they had waited for all those years, the one who would do what Adam didn't do, the one who would do what Israel did not do. And did you know what happened in verse 7? Did you notice that? The John cult got shut down quickly by John himself. There's another one coming. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. John the Baptist reminds me of something that pastor and professor and author Jared Wilson experienced. Someone said to him once, you're the preacher? Yes. So you're the guy with all the answers? And Jared replied, no, I'm the guy who points to that guy. That's what John is doing here. John knew that all the answers were to be found in Jesus. 
John knew that the message of comfort that was resonating with, pe- resonating with people, making them flock out to see him in the river, was not due to John, or not due to his preaching, or not due to his winsomeness. John knew that the message that was drawing people was due to a power outside of himself, namely Jesus. And John said that the one that was coming was so holy, so mighty, so otherworldly, that he was not worthy to do the basest thing, which was to untie the sandals of Jesus. Slaves did that. And John said, he's so worthy, I'm unworthy to even do that. I'm not worthy to fall before him and take off his shoes. John shows us that ministry is about Jesus and not us. Let me say that again. Ministry, it's not about us. It's not about this church. It's about Jesus. And repentance involves coming to grips with the fact that life is not about you. Repentance involves coming to grips with the fact that life is not about you or me. Now think about this. Who builds a church by calling everyone to repentance? Who builds a church by telling people to confess their sins out in the open? John does. And we do here at Grace. That's the kind of church we want to be here at Grace. We want to foster a gospel culture where we can freely confess our sins and experience the comfort of our Savior. That's repentance. You don't see many chapter titles called repentance in any books on how to build the church. Church planting seminars probably don't have sessions on repentance. Why? Probably because these so-called experts assume that no one will come to a church that calls for repentance. Probably because they don't understand repentance. Repentance is not just owning up to your sin. Repentance also involves being loved on by Jesus, being comforted by him. In fact, that's the starting place. That's how repentance starts. Most churches fall into one of two categories. Those who are heavy on sin and those who are heavy on feelings. One just beats you up with the law. They make you feel bad all the time. Every sermon is supposed to make you feel bad. Every sermon is supposed to make you leave church defeated and discouraged. Those kind of churches, you're supposed, that's what holy is. That was a good sermon. Did you feel bad? Do you feel terrible? Yes. Then that was a good sermon. Is that how we want to leave church every week? The other kind of church never mentions sin. It's like everything's hunky-dory with the world. They want to meet your needs, your, your felt needs. And so they have positive messages with life principles on how to be a better blank. And they sprinkle some of God's love on top. Sermons in those kind of churches become stuff that you can get from Oprah or you can get off Pinterest. John the Baptist would tell us that this is off base. John would say, highlight the gospel. Talk about the love and kindness of God. Tell people that they can't even begin to imagine just how sinful they are at their core. But then tell them that they can't even begin to dream how much God loves sinners. And then that will produce heart change and bring about repentance. Rod Rosenblatt said, Repentance involves putting a wooden stake through the vampire heart of I'm getting better. Repentance involves driving a wooden stake through that vampire heart that says, I'm getting better. The pastor gave me seven steps to being a better disciple. Let me ask you this morning. 
are we really getting better? How many of you still struggle with the same sins that you have always struggled with? Raise your hand. Hey, we're free here. How many of you struggle with the exact same sins that you've always struggled with? Keep them up high and look around. Look at this place. I thought we were supposed to be getting better. Man, we're in trouble. Are we really getting better? Is that the point of Christianity? Getting better? If that's the main point, by everybody's hands that were raised, we're not doing this thing right. If getting better is the point of Christianity, then we're doing something wrong. If that's the main point, then we're in trouble because we're just like Israel. I don't like to think in terms of getting better. I like the word transformed. It's, it's biblical. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind, Paul says in Romans 12. Not by willpower or subjecting our bodies or giving up sugar or becoming a vegan or pure discipline and sweat. No, it's as we renew our minds, as we think differently. Remember, that's what the word repentance means, to change one's mind. As we think differently, as we begin to let God's promises take root in our heart and minds, simply put, it's gospel rehearsal, which we talk about all the time here at Grace. That's how we are transformed. That's how those flocking out to see John were transformed. And I think really transformation just more happens in the moment. You do it one moment, you kill sin, and another moment you don't. But it doesn't mean that you never struggle with a particular sin for the rest of your life. Because you may. Because we all do. And then John gives them a promise that Jesus will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. What is this baptism with the Holy Spirit? What is John talking about here? Well, John knew that sin brings death. So John was saying, there's one coming who will baptize you with power, with regeneration. He will make you new. He will give you life. Sin brings death. Jesus brings life. That's what John means here. Baptism with the Spirit means that we experience regeneration. We're made alive by the Spirit. And then we trust in Jesus and we repent of our sins. And in that moment, we are united by faith to Christ. And we can't do anything to mess it up. That's good news. We can't mess up our inheritance. Israel could mess up their inheritance, and they did. It's the reason why the Romans were their lords and masters at the time of John's, Mark's writing, because they messed up their inheritance. So what John is saying is that Jesus will baptize with us with the Spirit, meaning our inheritance will be intact forever. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit is a deposit, guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. Listen to his words out of Ephesians 1. Verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's union with Christ. That means it's all riding on him. It's all riding on the Spirit of God and not us. When we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's proof that God always meets our mess with his mercy. When we're baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration, we're united to Christ forever, and we don't deserve that. That's mercy, to be united to Christ forever. We do not deserve that. That is mercy. That's God meeting our messiness with his mercy. In that, he unites us to Christ and to all of his benefits. That's sweet, sweet mercy. The story of redemption throughout the whole Bible is that God meets our mess 
with his mercy. He meets our failures with his forgiveness. He meets our guilt with his grace. He meets our sin with his salvation. This is how God has always dealt with sinners. Mercy always has the last word. Always. Sin, our sin, our mess, the ugly situations that we create in our lives and that we find ourselves in because of our sin, that ugliness and that messiness does not have the final word over our lives. Mercy does. Mercy always trumps sin. Always. Paul Miller says the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with wandering mind. Come messy. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. Tell God where you, where you are weary. If you don't begin with where you are, then where you are will sneak in the back door. Your mind will wander to where you are weary. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what gets us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. That's how prayer works. So instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are. That's how the gospel works. God begins with you. It's a little scary because you are messed up. God would much rather deal with the real thing. Jesus said said that he came for sinners, for messed up people who keep messing up. Come dirty. So today, Jesus is saying to all of us, come messy, come dirty, just like the Israelites. And walk away clean and forgiven and comforted. Now, as we close, imagine with me what, as a result of this passage, and I think what God is saying to us as a church, what, imagine what new work of the Holy Spirit would happen here at Grace if we started confessing our sins. How might God change this church? How might God change this city if we? started confessing our sins. Not pointing out everybody else's sins. Not pointing out the power players in Hollywood and what they do in hotel rooms. But starting with our own hearts. How might God change this church, change our lives, change this city, if we started just confessing our sins? I think God is saying to us today, try me. Start confessing your sins and watch how my spirit will usher in a new season of joy and mission. So let me ask you, who wants in? Who wants in on this? God doing something new in this church and new in this city because we come clean. Who wants in with me? The place is to start in your own heart and say, I'm a mess, but Jesus loves me. How about you? It starts with repentance. It starts with confession. And that comes because of God's kindness to us. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not a Christian, come clean today with who you are, and then you can be clean. You can come home. We know from the parable that Jesus tells us in Luke 15, Jesus tells us that he throws the best parties. When when prodigals come home, he puts a royal robe on them and a giant ring on their finger, and he kills the fattened calf, which I take it to mean Jesus makes tri-tip. And he ends that parable by saying they began to celebrate. Jesus throws the best parties for anyone who comes and says, I'm a mess and I need help. Will you come to him today? He's calling. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how merciful you are. 
and forgive us for painting a picture of you in our minds as this cranky, irritated dad who's always snapping at his children because they're bothering him. Forgive us of that, Father. It's true that in your holiness and your perfection, that anger is one of your attributes. But many of us just see you as only angry. Change our hearts today. May your kindness and your comfort towards us stir up repentance in our heart that we would confess our sins freely, not proudly, but we would freely confess them to one another and and walk in that freedom and that hope and that joy. Transform us. Make us more like your son. Keep doing a work in our hearts and in the city for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.